right. You guys hear me all right? Just trying to build up the suspense a little bit. <laughs> Keep you guys on your toes. So, I'm going to read the scripture. It's uh, John 15, 12 through 17. Let's be from the ESV. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants, servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. All right, well, let me also say welcome to Church at Five. And uh, some of you, I see some new faces. If you're just joining us or just joining this service for the first time, I'm Brandon. And I'm one of the elders here in Calvary Chapel, but I'm also the service pastor for Church at Five. And uh, yeah, we're coming up on almost six years of Church at Five, and it's been really cool to see a lot of different faces coming through here. I've had to introduce myself several times, uh, and so I'm encouraged to see some new faces again this time of year. And right now, we're currently in the midst of a mini-series called Back to the Roots. I think it's a good way to start. We took a break. We always take a break over the summer. And I kind of want to get back to where we were and get back to kind of ministry. And so it's good to also then get back to the roots. And uh, just a little bit of kind of why we're doing this is, one, because I know for a lot of people, it's a time of new beginnings. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, the new semester just starting. I know some of you have new apartments. Some of you are in new relationships, new jobs. Uh, So for some of it's like getting back into something, maybe starting something new. And I think in the midst of all that, it's good to make sure we get back to this kind of focus, this root, so that we don't lose sight of what's really important in our faith. And the second reason why back to the roots, and this is something that I think is, has been really heavy on my heart, especially as I scroll through my news feed on my phone, the world is constantly changing around us. There are literal wars and rumors of wars that uh, we see Jesus even talk about when he's talking about heading towards the end. And uh, we literally have things at our doorstep. We have been in the midst of a pandemic, and our culture has been really distorted in in recent times and constantly changing what it deems to have value and canceling whatever it deems not worthy. And uh, if you actually, Alex preached on this this morning, and I thought it was a really great depiction of just the chaos of our world right now when it comes to our understanding and a war on truth even. And it seems even the simplest understandings of truth and reality are under attack. As Christians then today, we need to make sure that we're rooted in a firm foundation. We don't want to be influenced. We don't want to be changed by what's around us. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Resting in the word of God is our foundation. Jesus says that those who stand firm to the end will be saved. And we want to stand firm, not moved, not shaken, but stand firm to the end. And to do this, We must be on a firm foundation to have a grasp of the truth of the gospel and to understand what it means to live out 
a discipleship for Christ. In this series, we've been looking at John 15. It's a mini-series, so there's only so much that we can unpack. And so, just a little bit about John 15. It's actually a segment of Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples. And that goes from John 13 to John 17. And it's surrounding the events of the Last Supper. Right? So, from really from the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus all the way to the cross and his kind of final words. And here in chapter 15, we're right in the middle. They've left the upper room. They've, you know, they've finished their supper. And we can imagine them walking through the vineyards. This is why I think we get a lot of these images of the vine. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We must bear good fruit. He's been talking about a lot through chapter 15. And they're ultimately heading to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be betrayed. Now, if Jesus had a watch on him at that time, we can imagine that he would be checking it again and again. I'm sure he had an awareness of time, so he didn't need to. But that's the sense here. He knows that his time is almost up. He literally just has a few hours left with his disciples before everything falls apart for a time and chaos ensues and they're going to be a little bit unsure of themselves and he wants to make sure that he tells them what's important. There's an urgency that we can feel in the text, even in the things that he repeats, that, hey, these are things you need to pay attention to. It's like when you're kind of getting, you're in a deep conversation, but you know that, you know, you have to get to a next, your next appointment and you're trying to get all those last words out before you kind of have one foot out the door, or maybe that's just me. I tend to be the one that's doing that, so you guys uh, who've had meetings with me are like, yeah, we know. I was trying to get in that last thing. That's what Jesus is trying to do. And so if we want to be rooted in what matters most, this is a good place to look. It's not the only place, but it's a good place to look because Jesus is preparing his disciples not only for what's about to happen. He's not just preparing them for the chaos of when he goes to the cross and they scatter for a time. He's preparing them for the ushering in of the new covenant. Things are about to change, that are, and that change has been always planned from the beginning of time, and it's a change that's going to go into eternity. The time of the new covenant, he's preparing the disciples for the building up of the church as it has been planned from the beginning. Remember, the Jesus, remember Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has a plan, he has a purpose, and he's been setting them up from the beginning. But here in this, this, this farewell discourse, we can really grab a hold of what, is, what does he want to make sure that is sunk deep in their minds and in their hearts before things start to change. So we should pay attention to what Jesus is emphasizing. And I think it's interesting, when we look at the text that I just read, uh, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit and, and stuff. And I think when we think about, okay, what do we need? We're going to, uh, I think a lot of us are going to go straight to the Holy Spirit, right? And amen, we need the Holy Spirit. But isn't it noteworthy to think about what he says first here in the text? What is he emphasizing first as he's preparing them for what's to come. So far, the message that we've been looking at here in chapter 15 has been centered on the absolute necessity of our being connected to Jesus Christ. It is a necessity. And in that connection, there will always be a result of fruit. The image of the branch and the vine is one of absolute reliance. As we've talked about already, a branch cannot exist, it cannot function, it can't have any life in itself if it is disconnected from the vine. 
So we must be connected to the vine, and apart from him, apart from that connection, we can do nothing. We cannot produce fruit, but connected to him, we will produce fruit. So the fruit even becomes an evidence that we are, in fact, connected to the one true vine of Jesus Christ. So far, he's kind of then expanded upon that, and we looked at it, especially last week, he's, Jesus emphasized our need to abide in him and also to abide in his word and to abide in his love. And then last week we also saw, as Sam pointed out, this kind of following his example in our obedience to his commands, that we want to obey Jesus Christ just as he obeys the Father, right? That's how the same way that we're supposed to be obeying him, this kind of complete trust and reliance and obedience. So he's setting the stage for the new covenant, the founding of the church, that we would be his people and that he would be our God for eternity. This was always the plan, and Jesus is setting the stage for that reality, preparing his disciples, the apostles. What else can we imagine that Jesus might want to emphasize as most important before he heads to the cross to prepare them? to repair the apostles. These are going to be the apostles, they don't know it yet, who will usher in this new covenant and build up the church. A lot of thoughts come to my mind, you know. What are the practical, what's some practical advice that he might have given? How to preach the gospel. That seems like it might have been a good thing to tell them and prepare them in. Or how to build or how to plant a church or, you know, the five rules you need for a healthy ministry. Or how to have a great worship set. No. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This can feel surprising. I've been to a lot of like pastor conferences and ministry workshops, and you know they always want to give you the five things you need to do or the five things you need to know and da-da-da. And some of it's really good. I don't want to put all that aside or put it down in itself. But Jesus is making this point again when he has so little time, when he has so little time, and must choose his words wisely to make sure they understand the vital necessities to prepare them for the ministry ahead. And his commandment is that they love one another. His commandment is that they love one another. So look to the person on your left and on your right. Yeah? Do you love them? (laughs) Don't answer out loud. And here's the real question. Do you love them in the same way that Jesus loves you? Do you love them in the way that Jesus loves you? That's the commandment. Now, I think on on the service, we can read over this and think, that's a nice sentiment. Sounds beautiful. We should love each other. We should all just love each other. All right. We can romanticize it even. Let's be careful. This is not just a suggestion. This is a commandment. It's also another image of the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. For me to love you as Jesus loves me is no small thing. Let's take a moment. Let's try to grasp the significance of this command today. What does it even mean to love one another as he loves us? Now, there's a lot we could talk about. We're going to restrict what we're going to look at in examples of that to the text today. Otherwise, we would be reading the whole Bible of all the examples of Jesus' love for us. This 
is actually not the first time, though, that he gives this command, which just emphasizes again how important it is. When I say not the first time, I mean not the first time that night. Not the first time that night that he's talked about this exact same thing, giving not only the command but a practical example. So right after he washes the disciples' feet, we read him say the same thing. In John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this can feel kind of like a blow. Like, I always, I always feel really challenged when I read that accounting of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and him giving this command after. Because, you know, most Christians, I think most of us, you know, we love Jesus. And, and in our heart, we, we kind of maybe, we have a relationship with him and we, would, we want to respond to that, right? I want to do what Jesus is calling me to do. I want to go where Jesus tells me to go. I want to speak what Jesus tells me to speak. I want to demonstrate my love for him. Whatever he says, I'm going to do it. And then Jesus takes it to this next level and says, if, if you really want to show how much you love Jesus, it'll be seen in how you love each other. It's like every, everyone, you don't know the person sitting next to me, Jesus. And how often do we develop a competitive nature in ministry rather than one of love. Well, let's take a minute. Let's try to let's unpack this. What does it mean, one another, first of all? Love one another. He's specific here. He didn't say, go and love everybody. He didn't say, just love. He says, love one another. So he's specifically referring to the people of God in this context. He's referring to the people of God. Yes, we should have a love for the lost. We should have a love for the people out there who need to hear about Jesus, for sure. And that love should be seen in our desire to share the gospel with them, right? That they too would come to a knowledge of the truth and also be a part of that relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's not the love Jesus is talking about here. He's specifically talking about something. There should be a special love that we have for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be a love that is unique. It should be a love that is seen, that is seen by the world. The way that we treat one another as Christians should be a radical declaration that we belong to Christ. We are one in Christ. We will not be divided. All people will know, he says, I'll read that, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you go in and, and preach the gospel. Not if you live a good Christian life around non-believers. It, it, it's seen in, in how we love one another, first and foremost. So don't overlook that one. Don't, for, don't neglect the other things too, but don't overlook the importance I think so often this takes a back seat when it comes to how we conduct ourselves as believers and how we think about ministry and how we think about discipleship and how we think about our mission in this world as disciples of Christ. This is not a secondary issue for Jesus. Two times in the, in the night that he's about to be betrayed and head to the cross, 
Two times he gives this command. And, and so far, this is the only command that he's given. The other ones are just, obey my commands. If you love me, you will obey my commands. But the only time he says, this is my commandment, two times in the same night, he says, love one another. This is not a secondary issue for Jesus. It's a primary responsibility for us as Christians. It's a direct fruit and result of our connection to Jesus Christ. If you do not, or if you struggle to love your fellow brothers and sisters, we need to check our hearts. Now, will we love one another perfectly? No, probably not. Absolutely not, because we're not perfect. So then what does it mean we should love one another as Christ loves us? Let's look at some examples of Christ's love for us here in the text. There are two examples that I think will help us to apply this. How does Jesus love us? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Well, there you go. So be ready to die for the person next to you and you're ready. No. You don't need to do that just yet. This is the pinnacle. This is the pinnacle, the ultimate expression of love according to Jesus' standard, a willingness to lay down our life. But before we all start dying for each other, let's think about the kind of love that this is, the kind of love that this is. Jesus' love is sacrificial. Jesus' love is sacrificial. Who would you be willing to die for? Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe someone, a great man or woman who's doing great things in the world. And you think, man, if, if I laid my life down so that they could live, it would be worth it. Romans 5, 6 through 8 gives us this thought experiment, but then shows us what Christ's love looks like compared. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So then the question goes, well, would you be willing to die for a prisoner? Maybe someone on death row who deserves their punishment? Would you give your life up for them? Jesus' love for you is that he loved you even though you had nothing to offer. That's what sacrificial love looks like. You had nothing to give him. We don't make Jesus better because we love him. Jesus, we don't add anything to Jesus because we love him, because we serve him. So what does he say? Oh, if you really love me, then love one another. That's the expression of love. We love Jesus simply because he loved us first. That's why we love him. We don't bring anything to the table, and yet he loved us. We didn't deserve it, yet he died for us. This is sacrificial love to give, to be able to forgive when there's no return for your sacrifice. A vital expression of our love for one another is seen clearly in our ability to forgive one another. Are we able to forgive one another? As I said, we won't love each other perfectly, but we should always be willing to forgive. And I would say we should always come to a point 
eventually where we can forgive one another. Sometimes we really hurt each other because we're good at that. And it might take time, but there should always be a point where we can forgive one another. Because if we've been truly forgiven by Christ, we should come to a point where we can forgive one another, even when it doesn't help us or add anything to us. Even if we're not going to get anything back out of the deal, to be able to forgive those who we're not even that close to, because they're a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Forgiveness is an expression of sacrificial love. It's rarely very easy, but it is sacrificial love, and it's important. So we may not need to give up our life for every person we meet who's in the faith, but we can love without expecting. We can forgive and give of ourselves. What is it to lay down one's life? What is it to lay down one's life? before you literally die for someone next to you, would you be willing to lay down your career? Would you be willing to lay down your finances? Ah, you've been saving up for a new car and your brother or sister is in a need that you could meet if you put off that repainting your, your living room or whatever it might be. Would we lay down our finances? Would we lay down our prestige and how we're seen by others or the adoration of others? Bringing ourselves low for the sake of someone else. There are practical ways to show sacrificial love amongst one another. I can sacrifice my time in prayer. How much time do you spend praying for yourself compared to how much you spend praying for others? I can sacrifice my home that God's blessed me with to be hospitable. I can sacrifice my money to support the local church, to help those who are in need when I'm able. I can sacrifice my pride by letting others be elevated above myself and happy to see it happen. We can use what we've been given to encourage, to pray for, to support and love our fellow brothers and sisters. So we need to have sacrificial love as Christ has shown us sacrificial love, to love one another as he has loved us. But how else does Jesus love us? Well, see this other expression of that in verse 14 and 15. You are my friends if you, I'll read it again, you are my friends if you do not if, if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. See, a master doesn't need, and certainly wouldn't at that time, for the most part, tell their servant what their plans are. You know, hey, take those rocks, carry them over there. But why? What are we building? Do the work. That's what a master does to a servant. God did not need to reveal to us his purposes, his plan of salvation. Ah, oh, but he did. God didn't need to speak to us by the direct inspiration of a collection of writings spanning thousands of years that we can live in a time where we can hold the word of God in our hands. He didn't need to do that. God is creator. And if a master does not need to give an explanation to his servants, how much less does the creator owe an explanation to the creation? And yet, we stand here today studying his word together. 
Getting to know God better because of his revelation found in these texts. How amazing is that? That our creator, the creator of the universe, would even consider us. Call us friend. Reveal his truth to us. That we have the words of Jesus in the Gospels. We have the word of God we can hold in our hand. That he thinks of us is astounding. And for those who follow Christ today, Jesus calls us friend. He calls us friend. That doesn't mean that he's not also master and creator and Lord of lords and king of kings. But he's a good king and he cares for us so much that he made sure to show us his plan and his purpose. There's so much that we can study in the word of God. He showed us his plan that he would die on a cross, rise again, so that those who believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. What a glorious truth. What an amazing love that he would reveal this to us. Not just do it, but reveal its purpose. Now this translates into our love for each other and the reality of church discipleship. How we grow together. How we stand together supporting one another. See, I'm not standing here as the spokesman for God. Christ is the head of the church, and we are his sheep, all of us. All of us have access to the word of God. All of us have access to get to know him more and to go deeper in our relationship with him. And if the creator of the universe can reveal his plan to us, we should be tremendously humble in our love for one another. Tremendously humble in our love for one another. Within the church, there should always be just a sense of camaraderie that we are working together for a purpose. We should have a genuine desire to see all of us, every believer, from the, a believer who's been following Christ for a day to someone who's been following Christ for 50 years, Growing, all of us growing, being equipped for ministry as we seek to know Jesus in our lives. All dissension and jealousy and comparison and competitive, competitiveness should fade away. That does not belong. Not when we are living as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not when we are living in the unity that God has provided for us and called us to. Our desire should be to see all of our brothers and sisters continually growing in the knowledge of the truth, being perfected by the Holy Spirit. Small groups are a great example. This is why it's so important, why we emphasize it, and why we're trying always to have more small groups if you're interested in becoming a small group leader. It's important to be gathering together in groups, connecting to one another, and helping one another grow in our understanding of God's Word. Not seeing one elevated above the, the others or any kind of weird dissensions that can grow in ministry and our human nature. Jesus didn't owe us anything, and yet he revealed the mystery of our salvation through his word. We then should love one another with an openness and a willingness to build each other up and to serve one another. To put ourselves below others, to see others rising up. The Savior of the world washed the feet of his disciples. If our Lord Jesus and our Savior 
can humble himself in his love for us, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters? To love one another as Christ loves us means to be humble. Now the reality is, we will only genuinely be able to love our brothers and sisters when we are connected to Christ. Verse 14 says, If you are my friends, if you do what I command you. And that command is to love one another. But apart from him, we know we can do nothing. So again, I say, if you struggle to love your brothers and sisters, go back to the root. Seek after Christ, that he would work in your life. Because Jesus takes this a step further and really connects our salvation with this commandment, which unfortunately we won't have time to unpack fully. But let me read verse 16 again. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I chose you for a purpose and that you would see that that purpose would be fulfilled so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is an echo of Jesus also, uh, his words at the um, end of the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, where he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. So if we're here today as brothers and sisters in Christ, and Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, and we have surrendered our life to him, and we trust in him and him alone for our salvation, then we have been called. That call is the call to all humanity that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to him. No man comes to the Father except through him. And we have been chosen, appointed for a purpose of good fruit. First and foremost, to love God and to love one another. So if one is truly connected to Christ and has the fruit of loving their brothers and sisters, then we can ask when we look at the last part of this text, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If those things are true, then what sorts of things would we ask the Father to give us? What sorts of things would we ask him to give us? I see here an application of a fruitful prayer life. Whatever you ask the Father, in Jesus' name, he will give you. That sounds great. I have a lot of things that I'd love to have. He says he'll give it to me. Let's consider the context before we get too excited. Make sure, making sure we're checking our heart. See, in the context here, the thing that I should desire most, and I would hope that you... Feel this as you grow in your relationship with Christ. The thing I should desire most is to spend a lot more time praying for you than myself. I should desire to spend a lot more time praying for you than for myself. Have you ever experienced answered prayer? Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's great when God answers a prayer. But I can tell you, the both sides that I've experienced God answering prayer in the most in my life, the most concrete, is I felt God work in my life through the prayers of others. And I have seen God work in others through my prayers for them. That's where I've seen the most answered prayer. That's where I've seen God work the most powerful. And if I'm truly living a life where I'm obeying the command to love my brothers and sisters as Christ loves me, then my greatest desire in my prayer life is to spend time praying for my brothers and sisters, to see God answering their needs before my own. 
This seems to always have more power, right? When we pray for others rather than ourselves. This should push us to want to grow closer to one another. Right? Because I want to know how to pray for you. I want to know the things you're struggling with. I want to know the things that I can be on my knees before God for you. And I want you to know the things that you can be on your knees before God for me. I know that whatever I ask the Father, when I'm in line with His will, Sam talked about that last week, you can listen to that, Whatever I ask the Father, it will be given to me. But when I ask out of selfishness or conceit or pride or vanity, God's not going to give me what I want there. He's not going to answer that prayer, not for spite or simply because he doesn't want to, but for my sake, because it's not good for me. It's not good for me to get everything I want. I don't give my children everything they ask me. Otherwise, they would just have candy for dinner every night. And that wouldn't be good. They don't know that it's not good, but I do. How much more does my Father in heaven know what's good for me? But when I put my own needs aside and I pray for you, it's a lot harder to do that in pride. It's a lot harder to do that with a selfish intent. So we can bring our pure heart before God in our prayer life when we're focusing a lot more on praying for others than ourselves. That to me is the key to understanding what it means But whatever we ask the Father, he'll give us. But what are we asking? His whole emphasis in this text is what? Love one another as I have loved you. And I'm so thankful that Christ didn't put his own needs first. But he sought our salvation as he went to the cross. That's how Christ loves us. That's how we should love one another. And that's how we should pray. We are family when we are in Christ together. One body, the church. We are God's people and he is our father. This is what unites us more than anything else. This is what unites us more than anything else. It's a unity more profound and that runs deeper even than our own flesh and blood. Do we live like it? Do we seek to know each other, to connect to one another? to pray for one another, to support one another, to stand together and not be divided. Verse 17, he closes off this this whole point by saying it again. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And that's right after this image of we can ask the Father, whatever whatever we ask the Father, he's going to give us. Ask it in Jesus' name, he'll give it to you. So that you will love one another. Remember that you've been chosen, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And before we bring the love of Christ to the world, as we should, as we are called to do, to go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, amen, we must learn to love one another. We must learn to love one another, to stand together. When the world sees how we treat each other, how we stand together no matter what, how we remain united as one in the midst of storms and turmoil and uncertainty, always being able to forgive one another, praying for one another, and loving one another. Even when we don't share the same hobbies, sometimes the same interests, sometimes even having major disagreements, 
We should always have a unity that we are one in Christ. And to that, I would encourage you to start today. Start today. Start by simply getting to know your brothers and sisters, getting to know the people around you. If you look to the left and your right and you didn't know one of them, get to know them. And I always find it interesting when you find someone in the church that Jesus is just about the only thing you have in common. Get to know them anyway. Challenge yourself. Look at them as family. Because we are family. And if we are commanded to love one another, it's a good place to start to simply get to know one another a little bit better. Because it's no small thing to be united in Christ. But it is a glorious thing. Amen.